this morning's sermon text is going to be out of Revelation chapter 6. If you could please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a, gall, a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was mo- removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the day, the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You may be seated. Before we get started, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this place and this people, Lord. And above all, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through your holy word. Please, Lord, be present with us uh, this morning in this place and help us, Lord, to also put aside any frustrations or distractions so that we too might be present here with you this morning. Let our hearts be calm. Let our minds be clear. Fix our eyes upon you, Lord, and reveal yourself to us through your word so that we might, be better, we might better know you and love you and those that you call your own. We ask all these things in your blessed and holy name. Amen. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name's Tim Simpson. I'm an elder here at Christ Church. Every once in a while, I get the privilege of preaching. Um, and, uh, and today's one of those things. You're lucky. Judd just got back from his, uh, his anniversary trip. How many years? 15 years. That's, that's worth a clap, I think, right? Yeah. 
and uh, the weather's nice. I couldn't ask for a better day. Um, so to get us thinking about this, I'm going to go in a different direction. How many of you seen The Dark Knight, the movie, 2008 Batman film? You guys, you seen this? Good, I'm glad somebody's seen it. <coughs> in it, there's this famous scene where the Joker is played by Heath Ledger. He goes to the hospital. You guys remember that scene? He goes there to have a conversation with Harvey Dent, who's played by Aaron Eckert. And while he's, uh, while he's laying in the hospital bed, um, and a lot of film buffs sort of recognize that this conversation is a defining scene for the film and for the Joker because it reveals his ambitions. I'm going to read a bit of the dialogue for us this morning, but I want to set the scene first a bit. Harvey Dent, Gotham's rising star of an attorney general, and his girlfriend Rachel have just been attacked by the Joker's men. They were abducted and put in warehouses full of explosives. Batman barely rescues Harvey in time, but Rachel doesn't make it. That's a bit of a spoiler, <laughs> if you haven't seen it. Sorry about that. But the movie is almost 15 years old now, about the time you guys got here. Right? Um, so totally appropriate choice for, a, for an intro illustration. So you've all maybe had your chance to see it if you were going to see it. So I, but I apologize for the spoiler nonetheless. So now Harvey Dent is laying in hospital, recovering from a horrible injury in the explosion, and the Joker shows up to have this conversation with him. So the Joker sits down and he says, hi, right? If you remember, he's, he talks in a weird way. It's a weird voice. When you and, uh, and Harvey Dent yells, Rachel, you know, Rachel were being abducted, I was sitting in Gordon's cage. I didn't rig those charges. Dent says, your men, your plan. And then the Joker says, do I really look like a guy with a plan? You know what I am? I'm a dog chasing cars. I wouldn't know what to do with one if I caught it. You know, I just do things. The mob has plans. The cops have plans. Gordon's got plans. You know, they're schemers. Schemers trying to control their little worlds. I'm not a schemer. I try to show the schemers how pathetic their attempts to control things really are. So when I say to you that your, you and your girlfriend was nothing personal, you know that I'm telling the truth. It's the schemers that put you where you are. You were a schemer. You had plans. And uh, look where that got you. I just did what I do best. I took your little plan and I turned it on itself. Look what I did to this city with a few drums of gas and a couple of bullets. Hmm? You know what I noticed? Nobody panics when things go according to plan. Even when the plan is horrifying. If tomorrow I told the press that, like, a gangbanger would get shot, or a truckload of soldiers would be blown up. Nobody panics, because it's all part of the plan. But when I say that one little old mayor will die, well, then everybody loses their minds. It's a good movie. It's an interesting scene. But the reason that I wanted to talk to you about it this morning is to highlight something that the Joker says to Harvey. He says, nobody panics when things go according to plan, even when the plan is horrifying. And what's implicit in a statement like that, and really in the Joker's whole monologue, is that anytime we encounter a plan, or even part of a plan, that we don't like, maybe we should panic. Maybe we should worry about <clears throat> when we hear plans that scare us or don't make sense to us or don't line up exactly with our wants and our ex expectations. 
And you would assume that the bigger the plan, the greater the potential impact, the truer that statement should be. Big plans that we don't like or understand should cause us to panic. So now imagine with me for a moment what it might have been like for the earliest readers of Revelation when they got to chapter 6. If you're like me, you wonder if they had their own moments of panic when they read our text for today. Because so far in Revelation, we've mostly avoided the topic of judgment or death. We've seen John's address to the churches, some good, others less good, the throne room and the one on the throne surrounded by the heavenly hosts. The one on the throne has a scroll and it's sealed with seven seals. And then the Lamb of God appears, and we're told he alone is worthy of taking that scroll and opening the seals. But here in chapter 6, when the seals are finally opened, the majesty and the worship of the throne room give way to several horrific images. There are four horsemen who are seemingly give authority to inflict calamities upon the earth. We see portraits of conquest and war and famine and death. We're told of the crying of souls of Christian martyrs pleading for vengeance. And we're told of a great earthquake that seems to threaten the unmaking of creation. So we have to remember the early church was already being persecuted. To some extent, the persecution had been ongoing, but historically we know that it, it gets especially bad under the emperors Nero and later under Domitian. John himself would have known several Christian martyrs not least of which was Stephen, whose death we read about in Acts, and uh, several of his fellow apostles. And Christians of that time, we know, had this strong expectation that Christ was going to return any day. They longed for Christ to come back so that he could set things right. So this is probably not what the early church was expecting to hear from John. Christ has finally taken his place in the throne room, but seemingly the first consequences of his actions are war and death and famine. At the very least, they would have had questions about what it all meant. And today, we still have those questions. In fact, we may have more questions because we lack the context that they had. What are these seals? What are the four horsemen? Are they bad? Why is one dressed in white? White is traditionally reserved for holiness. We see a white rider later on. Is it the same white rider as, as, as later, or, or is it now? Is it something different? <clears throat> What's up with the altar and the souls? What should we make of the earthquake? Who is being afflicted here? Is it, is it everyone, or is it only some people? If it's only some, then, then who? And when is all of this supposed to happen? Is it far in the future? Or has it already happened? Or are we somehow in the middle of it? And people have tried to answer these questions in lots of different ways. Some people think uh, most of the events described here have already found fulfillment in the events of the early Roman Empire. Some people think that they've happened sometime after that or maybe are even continuing to, to happen in history but that many of them have already happened. Some people think that they're all future. Some people think that these are all predictions of future events. 
And some people think that they're meant to be understood symbolically and that they're real in the spiritual realm but may not have direct correlation to any single worldly event. Instead, maybe referring to patterns or themes. And in the midst of all these questions and confusion and various attempts at interpretation, it's easy to fall into a number of traps. We might become so convinced of our particular interpretation that we let it become a primary issue within our theology, allowing it to divide the church. This could perhaps be an entirely different sermon. I'm not going to dig into that too much today. But I will talk more about the other trap that I see is equally dangerous, which is the trap of doubting that any real meaning can be found here at all. We might doubt whether the text is really inspired or saying anything of significance. We might turn our doubts to God and wonder whether he's really all that powerful if all these bad things have to happen. We might doubt whether God is even good if he's willing to allow so much suffering and persecution to take place. And especially if we've seen this kind of wickedness firsthand or if we've already experienced this kind of suffering, we might doubt whether God's prophetic plan for the future is even much of a plan at all or or whether we're justified to be anxious or maybe even panic when we read about it. But in the midst of all that potential for pain and frustration and doubt, what I actually want to do this morning is to encourage us with what I think is the most important point being made here by the Holy Spirit through John's vision recorded in Revelation. And that point is, namely, that we can and should trust in God's plans, even when they scare us, especially when they scare us. So this morning, we're going to take a few, uh, we're going to make a few observations about why that's true and why it makes sense that we can trust in God's plans. So point number one, first point, we can trust God's plans because he's revealed himself to us. Specifically, he has revealed his character to us, and he is trustworthy. Look with me in verse one. It's important to note that the lamb is the one who is opening these seals upon the scroll. And who is the lamb? Well, we know the lamb is Christ. He's the one who is worthy to open the seals and to read the scroll. And and why is he worthy? Well, all throughout scripture, time and again, God has revealed his character to his people. Even in the story of creation, we see it. God is the creator, the author of life, the source of all good things and that are right and true. But God deplores wickedness and evil and will not tolerate it in his presence. And so when mankind disobeys him in a garden and chooses lies over truth, our relationship with the good God of the universe is splintered and we are forced out of paradise. We were cursed along with all of God's creation so that we might understand the consequences of our action and turn back to him. But even in that moment of cursing, in that initial moment of judgment, God also reveals the first tiny glimpse of his plan, a plan for our redemption. He promised one who would come from Eve and bruise the head of the serpent, a promise that we see fulfilled in Christ, the Lamb who is victorious over the sin and death that was introduced by the serpent into paradise. But we don't just see God's trustworthy character on display in Genesis. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God faithfully at work, drawing a people to himself and blessing them in their faithfulness and in their obedience. He protects them and redeems them from captivity. He guides them when they are lost and instructs them when they are wayward. He watches over them and gives them justice, appointing judges and kings in order to restore peace and justice to his people. 
And ultimately in Christ, God himself comes down, taking on human flesh, becoming the offspring of Eve, who will, true to his character, draw people to faith to himself, teaching them and guiding them, pursuing righteousness and justice on their behalf, and ultimately dying on the cross for them. This is the character of Christ, the Lamb, the one who appears as one slain on our behalf <clears throat> and who is opening these seals upon the scroll. He is good, he is just, he is compassionate, faithful, and merciful. He withholds nothing, not even his own life, for the sake of his people. Rona and I <coughs> are currently in the process of trying to get a UK spouse visa for me. And uh, one of the oddities of the UK spouse visa application process is that the sponsor, that's Rona, has to be able to show that they can financially support the applicant, that's me. And it doesn't matter how much money I'm currently making or how much money I've got in our, or we've got in our bank accounts here, the sponsor has to be able to either show a very specific yearly income in British pounds, which probably isn't going to happen for a while, because I'm not sure our boys are in school anyway, or be able to show a large sum of money sitting in a British bank account for over six months. We're talking simply roughly on the order of a year's salary. That's a lot of money. So, you know, we could probably shuffle things around uh, and get that amount into Rona's bank account back in Scotland. And for a number of reasons, it's just easier to have Rona's mom loan us what we need for the six months until we get a visa and then we give it back. And for whatever reason, the UK government is totally fine with that. So that's our plan. <coughs> but it strikes me, uh, it strikes a couple of things strike me. One, how blessed we are that something like that is even an option for us. We're thankful to Rona's mom for being willing to help out in, any, in that way, and of course, we're, we're grateful that it's even an option. Um, we know that's not a given. And we also know that um, lots of folks might not have that kind of trust in their family. And that's something to be thankful for as well. Because I couldn't imagine trying to do something like this with someone that I didn't know all that well or someone that I didn't, I didn't trust, especially if I was the one doing the giving. But when we trust in someone's character, especially when we've seen that character proven over time, it's of course easier to trust the plans that they've made. And so when it's God making the plans, we should know that whatever plans that he has for the future, it's, it's his plans that we're talking about. He will not aim to accomplish what is not good and true and perfect. It's simply not in his character. So what we shouldn't do here is make the mistake of seeing God's plan for salvation and God's plan for judgment as two different plans. They are the same plan, brought about by the same character. He is holy and desires justice, pouring out his wrath upon the wicked and the corrupt, and at the same time, he is merciful and compassionate, offering the free gift of grace to those who put their trust in him. Our faith in God and our trust in his plans need to be rooted in his character, who he has revealed himself to be in Scripture. Our trust is not in tradition. It's not in our interpretive methods or even our doctrine, as important as those things are. Our faith is in Christ, the pure and holy Lamb, who offered up his own life so that in him we might live forever. But today, many misunderstand God's self-revelation. They read about God's judgment and wrath, and because he is unknown to them, they assume that he is like the pagan gods. They assume he is merely a powerful being 
something like a human with supernatural powers. They assume that he has a mind or a heart that, if one is clever enough, can be easily understood. But those who are familiar with Scripture know that nothing could be further from the truth because God has also revealed his holiness. And by this, I'm drawing from the actual meaning of holiness. Often we might hear holiness used to mean good or, or worthy of worship and devotion. And when we're talking about God, and we often are when we use the word holy, those things are, of course, true. But in both Greek and Hebrew, the words translated as holy more literally mean something like set apart or different or unlike. And that makes sense because it then carries the familiar connotations of sanctified or consecrated or even exalted. So when I say that God has revealed his holiness, I mean that God has revealed his set-apartness. God has revealed his differentness, his unlikeness uh, to any of his creations. Even though we are made in his image, he is holy, we are not. So God has revealed, in part, his inscrutable, unfathomable, incomprehensible holiness. And to see this in our passage today, we can again look to the Lamb. We are told that he alone is worthy. He receives worship and honor in chapter 5 from the 24 elders and from the four living creatures around the throne. No human or angel or other heavenly creature receives that same honor. Only the one on the throne and the Lamb. A and speaking of the four living creatures, who we again see here in chapter 6, as strange and as different as they may seem to us based on the description we get, covered in eyes and other things, it's, it's worth noting that they, in turn, recognize the different, differentness, the holiness of the Lamb. So the ones that we account as different actually see the Lamb as the one who is truly different. And rather than spending a lot of time arguing for God's holiness, I have instead two passages for us to consider as we think about God's holiness in relation to Revelation this morning. I think God's holiness is self-evident. That's why I don't think it's, it's, it's worth arguing for. Um, he himself says he's holy. <clears throat> and so that's our first verse. Both of these verses are probably familiar to you. Um, but I want you to think about them uh, and think about what they might mean in terms of trusting in God's plans. The first comes from Isaiah 55. In verses 8 and 9, the Lord says of himself, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God tells himself, sorry, so God tells us not to expect human ideas and behaviors from him. That's not how he's going to operate. Then in Romans 11, Paul recognizes the significance of God's holiness when it comes to the mystery of God's plans for salvation. So in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 36, he says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments! This got cut off on me. Is it up on the screen? How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 
Paul is marveling here at God's plan. And specifically, he's marveling at God's plan for using the Jews as an instrument for the salvation of the Gentiles. He says here that the Jews' hearts have been partially hardened so that Gentiles might come to faith. And as a Jew, <clears throat> it's likely not what Paul would have chosen for his people. But nevertheless, he sees it working among the Gentiles. And so he praises God for his mercy and his compassion, even while having to trust that God's plan for salvation will eventually include his people. Lately, <clears throat> Rowan and I have been watching a lot of uh, Scandi Noir type murder mystery shows. We're sort of addicted. We've gone through a bunch. Um, we've actually sort of run out, and so now we're looking at Scandi Noir political dramas, right? Anyway, but um, that doesn't matter. Sorry. And one of our favorites that, that we watch with friends is called Shetland. I don't know if any of you have seen Shetland. Unsurprisingly, it's set on the Scottish Isle of Shetland. The scenery is great. Um, the characters are great. We love it. But, but anytime I'm watching a show like that and they're starting to talk about computer stuff or software or things like that in any detail, because that's, that's what I do for a living, I start to get nervous. Because if they botch it, it's got this real potential to kind of, you know, suck the, the immersion, the realism out of it for me. But I imagine that tech stuff is not the only thing that gets misrepresented on TV, right? This is a recent realization, by the way. This is just how sometimes things just don't come to us. Like, oh, people just don't know how, how complicated tech is. Everything's like that. Every, everything's like that. Every, every, every field has its own jargon, er, has its own lexicon, you know, its own depth and uh, annoyances and um, trivialities that you have to know um, and that the writers just probably don't know. I'm sure doctors and nurses and teachers and soldiers all must get tired of rolling their eyes at the way that their professions get portrayed sometimes on TV. And the poor, poor police officers. There are so many procedural crime dramas out there right now. How many must totally ignore the daily realities of police work and actually, and, and even criminal behavior in order to make their new drama extra interesting or exciting for viewers? But of course, the biggest problem here is that the writers of the show are first and foremost, they're writers, that's what they do. And so they don't know these other professions, not in the depth that the people who do them actually do. They can't know everything about those professions. And if they don't have the experts to hand to answer their questions, sometimes they just probably have to wing it. They've got deadlines too. And sometimes they're going to get it wrong. And whether or not we want to admit it, I think that's probably often what we do when we're put in the position of trying to think like God. To think how we might do things differently, if that was even a thing, right? How we might handle justice and compassion. The plans that we might make for humanity we're immeasurably further away from understanding God's thoughts and plans than any writer tackling writing about our professions. Because what God's holiness helps us to understand is that we should not always expect his plans to make perfect sense to us or to look exactly how we would expect. And on its own, that line of argumentation might feel like a cop-out, that God gets to do whatever he wants because... It's, quote, it's complicated. But when we combine his holiness with his character, we see that not only should we trust him for the easy things, 
but that we should trust him even when we don't understand what he's doing because he's trustworthy. And this, in turn, helps us when we look at a text like this one. It helps us to trust that he knows what he's doing, both in his plan and also in what he reveals about that plan, what he reveals to his people. And that brings me to my next point. Why, then, is God showing us these images? Final point for this morning. God has revealed a heavenly vision of his plans. My point here is simply the obvious one that God is revealing a part of his plans to us. The name of the book is Revelation, after all. He is revealing. And here in chapter 6, we see the breaking of the six, uh, the six of the seven seals that hold closed this scroll from the previous chapter. Once the seventh seal is open, the entire scroll can be unrolled, can be revealed, and we can see everything that's in it. And we specifically see the breaking of those seals in, in verses 1 and 3, 5, 7, 9, and then, and then 12. But this pattern of symbolic re revelation that we see here, it continues throughout the book. There are not just seven seals, but seven trumpets and seven bowls. There are even seven thunders as well, but John's told not to write those down. Each of these seven also seem to follow a pattern where the first four are somehow linked together. And then there is a pause of some kind between the sixth and the seventh element in the list. And there's other hints at completeness and intentionality. But, but what I want us to get here is that we, we don't have all the details, but we can see that there's an order to this. It's intentional what God is doing and revealing to us. In Revelation, God is laying out before us a prophetic vision of his plans for judgment and salvation. But because it's a prophetic vision, we know a couple things about what to expect from it based on other examples that we see in Scripture. It's likely going to have vivid imagery. Check. And poetic language. Check. And as such, it's going to lack clear chronological context meaning that the relative historical timing and sometimes even the certainty of the seen events are not always clear to the viewer. And perhaps, surprisingly, sometimes prophecy is conditional. One important example is when, God, is when repentance averts God's judgment. If you're curious what that looks like, think of Nineveh. Think of Jonah going to Nineveh. God has prophesied that Nineveh will be destroyed, but it isn't. So what's up with that? Well, it's because that was a prophecy that was conditional upon the repentance of the people of Nineveh, and they did. It's not explicitly stated that way, but that is what's happening. Right. So it's a prophetic vision, but what's the purpose? We still haven't gone there. How should we think about it? Prophecy provides us with divine knowledge. But it's always for a particular purpose. God never seems to give knowledge simply for knowledge's sake. And it's incredibly unlikely that God has given us this information solely for the accurate prediction of future events. Because there, there's a name for that kind of thing. Knowledge for the sake of predicting future events. There's a name for that. It's called divination. And we're told to stay away from it. So that's not 
It can't be the only reason that God is giving us this information. Most often, prophecy is intended to evoke a response in those who hear it, to shape them into the kind of people that God wants them to be. Israel's prophets wanted them to repent of their evil ways and return to the right worship of the Lord. Jonah, interestingly, was sent to Nineveh specifically with regard to their wickedness and, and through it caused them to repent. And that's true for us today as well. The church, both ancient and modern, ought to be shaped by the prophecies of Revelation. So how should we be shaped by this? What can we make of it? What do we see? Well, first off, we see the Lamb, who is Christ, and we see him in heaven. And we see various judgments against the world. Interestingly, a lot of the imagery seems to allude to Old Testament prophecies. Zechariah, for example, has prophecies regarding four chariots pulled by horses of similar colors to the ones that we see here. And in that context, the chariots become agents of judgment against the nations surrounding Israel for their wickedness against Israel. And the earthquake imagery seems to be several Old Testament passages, uh, seems to have similarities to several Old Testament passages in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, Joel, and Habakkuk. And we even see some of the same language showing up in Matthew 24, 29, um, the coming of the Son of Man. And in Acts uh, 2, 19, as part of Peter's um, sermon at Pentecost. And in all those contexts, the imagery seems tied to the unmaking of creation. But it's almost always paired with the appearance of God. So when God comes, he, earthquakes often happen. The moon may turn to blood. Things may fall from the sky. That is part of God's coming. <coughs> And even in Revelation, we see this imagery again. Uh, we see it again in chapters 11 and in 16. And, and there's also another possible allusion in, in chapter 20, where it says that earth and sky fled from the one on the throne, but no, no place was found for them. They couldn't, they couldn't flee from, from the other. And we also, here in this passage, we see the souls of Christian martyrs longing for God's judgment upon the wicked. But note that those souls are under God's altar. And in some Old Testament depictions, the altar can be identified with God's throne. So I think what we should understand there is that, effect in effect, those souls are under God's royal authority. They're under his protection. And here, they are being comforted and they're being honored, even though they are told that they must wait a little bit longer. So, it, so if I had to clumsily summarize these things, I might say something like the following. The judgment of Christ is coming because Christ himself is coming. True to his character, he will sit in final judgment of all creation when he comes again, restoring true justice and peace for those who belong to him. But until that time, his judgments and even his promises of judgment serve to call the wicked to repentance. Reading about God's plans in Revelation shapes us because it calls the unfaithful to repentance and it teaches those who faithfully belong to Christ not to fear when they see these signs of trouble because they know it's part of God's plan and because they trust him, 
They can trust his plan. And furthermore, it means that we shouldn't misunderstand God's purpose in revealing his plan. When we encounter these images in Revelation, we ought to realize they're not included out of some weird human-like attempt at bravado or saber-rattling or fear-mongering. Ultimately, he reveals his plans to us out of faithfulness and compassion. So then, when we trust in God's character and his holiness, knowing that God has good intentions for his people in the revelation of his plans, we can then approach passages like Revelation 6 with greater confidence. Because even when we see announcements of judgment in Scripture for those who belong to Christ, we know that God's judgment Almost made it. <laughs> Almost made it. I cry every time I'm up here. Almost made it. <clears throat> For those who belong to Christ, we know that God's judgment is never the end of the story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are holy. Your ways are not our ways, and your thoughts are not our thoughts. Who here can know your mind or give you counsel? We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your holy word and for the vision which you have revealed to your servant John. We thank you, too, Lord, for your holy word made flesh, for Jesus Christ, who lived among us and died on our behalf. We confess, Lord, that all too often we stray from you, seeking for the things of this world. Please, Lord, we pray, help us in our wanderings and our doubts. Help us to turn back to the life we find in you. Fix our eyes upon you. Reveal to us anew your glory and mercy and power. Renew our hearts and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to trust in your plans and to live simple and faithful lives that bring glory to you. We ask all these things in the holy, everlasting, precious name of Jesus. Amen.